The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. APSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for a sixth year running. Six years is proudly bringing you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Give us a shout, of course, as always, on 011-883-0702. Tweet us at Bruce Business, or whatever you do it to us on that platform, formerly known as Twitter, at Bruce Business, or WhatsApp, 072-702-1702. Give us a shout this evening as we kick off a brand new year here on The Money Show. And we look forward to bringing you lots of great stories, lots of great insights, lots of great wisdom uh, from the world of money, from uh, the many, many contributors who regularly give us of their time to share with you their insights and their understanding of an infinitely complex world. It really is quite complicated and things have, you know, when the world started looking a bit more certain last year, the world said, hold my beer. I've got a few more tricks up my sleeves and let us uh, keep a few surprises up our sleeves. And that's exactly what it's done with uh, the world kicking off in 2024 on a negative note. It's been a tough start to the new year. And I look forward to helping you, myself and you, understand it better as we progress into uh, the January of 2024. Uh, yeah, Coming up this evening, Chris Gilmore is going to be joining us. Chris Gilmore is, of course, an independent analyst. He's a guy who has got many, many years of experience in financial markets. And uh, we, I've asked him to comment on a piece I saw last week about the French supermarket group Carrefour, which has decided that it will no longer be carrying PepsiCo products because of price changes. And uh, PepsiCo products, of course, uh, Pepsi, Lay's, Crisps and others are instrumental in many of your baskets. And I wondered whether or not the... Uh, whether or not there would be any sort of pushback by South African supermarkets under similar circumstances. So we'll pick up on that this evening. Also tonight uh, on The Money Show Agenda, Peter Brook from the Old Mutual Investment Group is our market commentator. Tech with Toby tonight. Then we've also been bringing you extracts from the Genius Podcast series. Many of you missed it. Um, and so encouraging you to go and find the episodes because they're fabulous, even if I have to say so myself. But tonight, the importance of hiring and hiring effectively. And if you are considering boosting your team this year, if you're considering bringing new team members on board, uh, Hendrik Toy. Chief Executive at 91, the founding Chief Executive, more than 30 years later, still at the helm of one of the more respected businesses in the City of London. Uh, it talks about hiring. A really important part of any Chief Executive's role, of course, is making sure that the team around them is as good as it possibly can be. But also a wonderful story there about how uh, Hendrik uh, Dutoy's own sort of juniors within the business, we'll call them juniors, senior executives, defied him on one particular hire and how he's very grateful that they ignored his demand that one particular person was not hired. They went and hired this person behind his back. A couple of months later, he realized the error of his ways and they've all moved on and that person's become incredibly successful within 91. Uh, a regular book reviewer, Ian Mann at Gateway's Business Consultants, is reviewing a fabulous-looking book called Smart Brevity. 
We can all learn about smart brevity. Uh, we'll share that with you. And then how I make money, ways of inspiring you to talk to people, younger people in particular, about career choices and options. Just because you've studied accountancy or studied law or studied IT doesn't need mean that you need to go, go into those particular areas. There are weird and wonderful career options open in this glorious world of ours to you regardless of what you study. So tonight, Lyndon Burns, who studied what I studied mostly, well, he studied at Rhodes University many years ago, he studied journalism. He's not a journalist, however, yet he is a superlative communicator, someone who likes to communicate at the front end of crisis. We'll talk to Lyndon Burns about how he makes money at half past seven this evening here on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Well, such an interesting development in some parts of the world where the biggest supermarket groups are pushing back against supplier increases. All of the results commentaries from our local retailers last year, particularly the JSE listed food retailers, contained quite a lot of detail on how they moved heaven and earth. That's what they said anyway. Not those words, but that was the sentiment, to limit price increases for us as their consumers. Now, despite that, we saw massive increases, probably in the region of 10% or more in average grocery basket increases last year. And you pay even more, of course, if you like to buy imports or luxury products in that basket of groceries. It got me wondering as to whether or not we could get South African supermarkets to push back against suppliers to try and calm inflation. Care 4, one of France's big supermarket groups is not selling PepsiCo products because they're becoming far too expensive. And it's huge. It's a big step by a supermarket group. According to a piece I saw on CNN last week, it's the latest clash between retailers and suppliers over prices. Chris Gilmore is an independent analyst. Have you ever seen this before, Chris Gilmore, where big supermarket groups are saying to suppliers, please don't bother sending your trucks to us until you've thought about your pricing? Good evening, Bruce. Yes, indeed. It's it's a global phenomenon. It's, it's, it's. I know that you can hear me. I'm struggling to hear Chris Gilmore, who was there a moment ago, who was happily telling me um, that this is a global phenomenon. But I'm wondering, producers, if you can communicate with me as to whether Mr. Gilmore is still connected to us or not. Chris Gilmore, of course, uh, worked at the Financial Mail for many years as a journalist, came out of the markets, went into journalism, discovered that it was a terrible idea. Terrible idea to be in journalism. And we're back into investment markets where he has been enormously successful as an analyst and well-respected as an analyst. And it's a, it's a fabulous story. Careful displaying messages like uh, they have alongside Pepsi, alongside Lay's Chips, alongside Quaker Oats. We've got jungle oats in South Africa, but Quaker Oats is a global, uh, is a global phenomenon. Um, and... Uh, Chris Gilmore's line dropped, but we'll get him back. Uh, And uh, yeah, Quaker cereals, Lipton iced teas, and say we are no longer selling this brand due to unacceptable price increases. We apologize for any inconvenience caused. And that inconvenience, of course, um, comes to you as a consumer who when you go into a supermarket, you don't get your favorite product. But they take drawn a line in the sand. They've drawn, they've taken this principled stance to say this far and no further as suppliers 
you need to think about the way in which you manage your costs better rather than simply passing them on to us in the belief that we will keep on passing them on to our customers it's time to step in and that's precisely what they've done before we were so rudely interrupted uh, interrupted by a, a, a failing line there chris gilmore I'm, I'm wondering whether or not this is common practice in the world of retail yes indeed bruce can you hear me now I can, so clearly. It sounds like we're in the same room. Hello, can you hear me? I can, hello. <laughs> I can hear you. <laughs> okay, Perfect. good well, stuff. We can hear each good other. Good. Carry on. Yeah, I was saying, yeah, in, in the UK, you've seen Sainsbury's and Asda and uh, a whole bunch of uh, Tesco. Now, so basically, where the margins being squeezed? They're being squeezed by the sort of, and this comes back to your original proposition. Um, you mentioned Carrefour, for example, absolutely. Okay, so this is a phenomenon. It is there. Um, and I'm wondering then, uh, you know, because supermarkets always tell us, look, prices are going up. There's nothing we can do about it. We get to absorb price increases for as long as we possibly can. And they they do this. And then occasionally we start seeing prices going up. And I think average supermarket prices in South Africa went up by about 10% per basket last year. Certainly we've got a problem in our country, don't we? Well, yeah, yes, in fact, the problem went, went, went up closer to 14%. Uh, Chris Gilmore, this um, line is not working we... for us. So, uh, Chris Gilmore, mute him, please. And let's get him on a cell phone line, because even a cell phone line has got to be better than this catastrophe. Day one of the Money Show of 2024, and already the technology is letting us down. Producers, respond, speak, show me that there is a pulse. And get him on a phone line, please, so that we can get Chris Gilmore, get the information that we need from him tonight. Because what these guys in France are doing is once the products sell out, they're not going to be replaced on the shelves. Simply not going to be replaced. And that is an interesting development. PepsiCo products are going to be taken out of its stores in Italy, Spain and Belgium. And uh, PepsiCo uh, has said that it is in discussion um, and has been in discussion for many months and will continue in good faith to try and ensure its products are available. So there's this wonderful standoff happening, this wonderful standoff uh, between retailers and between product suppliers as well. As we look to get hold of Chris Gilmore on a more reliable form of communication this evening. I do love it when things start out with a whimper rather than a bang. Another fabulous story that I saw today, and it is a, a marvellous tale, and it's a choice of language. If you do have a young child or somebody who's potty-mouthed in the car with you, you may want to pause for a moment as I tell you a tale of how the Financial Times of all publications has decided to introduce the F word. Yes, that word. And if you're a subscriber to the FT, I wonder if you saw this today. Uh, the FT has published a graph, and you might be shocked to see the use of language with reference to a particular graph showing Zambia's attempts to restructure its battered public finances. And there's been a very simple graph. It's that X and Y axis that you're all familiar with, the X axis, labeled with the use of the, the full word of F around and the y-axis is labeled 
to find out. So on the, on the one bottom line, you've got F around, and on the y-axis is labeled find out. So the more you mess around, the more you're likely to find out things going against you, implying, of course, that um, if you don't get your ducks in a row, you're uh, likely to find out what the rest of the world thinks of you. Um, South Africa, of course, could be plotted along a similar graph. If you're not clear about your intentions and do as you say that you will, the sooner you will find out the negative consequences of what faces you. And in this case, the FT writes, when Zambia announced an agreement with bondholders to restructure its three outstanding euro bonds, many thought the G20's common framework would finally be able to notch up its first major success. Whoops. Alas, the deal was rejected several times by the official sector. The way forward is now unclear. Bondholders are irate because they're being asked to basically take a haircut, lose money. Zambia's debt stock is complex, a mix of official creditors, the largest being a big bank in China. Another one is in Eurobond claims, and another one is owed to commercial banks, including large Chinese state banks. It's debt of about... 12 billion dollars it all comes down to who will accept losses on their loans and the the longer the deal takes to hash out the worse that it gets and the paper says in zambia official creditors agreed to a deal based on the assumption that other creditor groups would accept a significantly higher present value reduction and the bondholder deal would not work if other commercial creditors asked for a similar amount of upfront cash so it's always going to be complicated of course this is high finance stuff but it's the ft's use of language and the f word in the venerable ft and that f word is not financial on the graph that is likely to generate the largest amount of chatter i suspect the Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running, APSA CIB. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. We'll get uh, back to Chris Gilmore at some point, I hope, because he's been, done a lot of work on this, and I'm really curious, and I've tried several times this evening, uh, to get an answer on what is likely to happen in the world of supermarkets in South Africa in terms of the competitive landscape with Care4, but his line is just not collaborating. Somebody whose line always collaborates better than most is Peter Brooks. Peter is a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group, and I, I think it's been a bit of a soggy start to the year, has it not, Peter Brook? It has, hasn't it? Um, so we obviously had a cracking last quarter of the year. I was just writing my quarterly commentary and the difference a quarter makes in terms of your annual returns, now it's something like that, that's quite pleasant as opposed to before it wasn't looking so good. So I think we had enormous returns. Markets are really strong, think about the Fed pivot. And so some profit taking seems to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was just such a huge amount of exuberance, wasn't there, toward the end of last year? And that was reflected, I think, in the S&P 500, which this time last year was going to give us absolutely nothing, ended up giving us 26%. Based on this belief, rightly or wrongly, that 2024 was going to be the year of rapid interest rate cuts and a, and a return and a recovery. That's right. Um, so the whole soft landing narrative um that that got markets excited and you can also see it a little bit with the positioning data so as people bought in you need continued new good news to keep going up and now um we're not we've got results probably going to be a little bit soggy out there um in the world if you sort of 
uh, obviously varying by country, but certainly in Europe, South Africa, I think things aren't going to be that amazing. So what, what keeps you going over the next, over the next hill? Absolutely right. So what sort of signals are you getting, if any, at this early stage of 2024? The, how are things looking like they might shape up? You see, I'm, I'm couching the conversation very carefully here, Peter, because I, 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 I realise completely that you can't say, well, this is going to happen. But uh, have the signals changed markedly? I think it's, you know, you, we can look at this at many different levels. If you think about what, what are the big drivers in the year ahead, some of those are going to be ongoing themes that have been with us for years and that are getting stronger. So if you think about um, decarbonization, you think about demographics, all of these long-term drivers are in place and are coming through AI, um, longevity. So we've got, we've got those are in place and remain in place and will continue to, to come through. Then you've got your more sort of cyclical noise or what's happening to the world economy, what's happening to rates. I think, quite frankly, that feels quite messy. It's, it's, it's going to be difficult to gauge, and that's why markets have been so almost bipolar. So if you think about the last year, think about interest rates shot up and then recovered. So long bonds, you lost a hoard of money, and then you made 20%. Um, so you're getting these very big moves. You know, I was looking at returns for the year, for last year, um, property just pipped equity, but very much in line with bonds. It's all much of a muchness between cash. But the property return was all delivered in December. <laughs> so it's, it's very dependent on point in time. And there, I think, I don't, I don't have a strong view in that, in that sort of more shorter-term space. So maybe I think some of the things that could dominate what we're looking at are going to be politics. So it is the year for elections. Um, we've got the US, which is your global superpower. Now, you know my view in terms of multipolarity, that that's in decline. But this whole election where you've got two octogenarians, I think that's the right term. Um, <laughs> I think those, I think those uh, octo is 80. So I think, yeah, I think we're in the right sort of ballpark in terms of linguistic accuracy there. Yes, Peter? Um fighting it out, then we've obviously got our own election, which is going to be fascinating. Um, and that creates a wide band of uncertainty. And for me, that I think is going to be quite important in terms of how do markets grapple with that. But it's not just here. I mean, there are something like 50 elections happening this year, covering 45% of the world's population, representing about 60% of the world's GDP. So, I mean, this is a year of big potential change for the world. Some of it will be good, some of it will be indifferent, and some of it will be absolutely rotten because, you know, democracies deliver uh, bad results for, for economies from time to time. And, and I just wonder whether this is the idea to be, the, the year to be in cash, or whether one continues with a sensible diversified investment strategy and allows the politics to play itself out and the clutter and the noise and everything else and let markets figure out whether or not profits will be sustained for the future. I think at, we, at least you've got a question where we're, where, where we're moving on to firmer ground, which is cash. <laughs> um, Onto money so, and returns, yes. 
In the long run, cash is diabolical. But sort of one year out of 10, it's amazing. And to me, if I look at the trends, you know, we had the we had a very bad year, not this year, but the year before, um, where cash did so much better than your 60-40 um, portfolio globally. And we, if you look at the vast amount of money that's moved into money market funds around the world, and you look at the extent of the interest rate hike, and you look at, so certainly in terms of rate of change, it's been one of the sharpest we've ever seen. The rates themselves are back at levels, in many cases, we haven't seen for a decade, sometimes 15, 20 years. So that has been a good environment for cash. All things being equal, then, it shouldn't be a good environment going forward. So the other theme that I think we can have a relatively high degree of confidence on is the direction of rates is down. So the timing we can argue about, and that's what markets are fretting about in the short term, and that's where I'm saying that's the noisy part, and quite frankly, that's not the time horizon we tend to look at. We tend to take a longer-term perspective. So on cash, I think rates are coming down, um, and I think as a result, there's quite a lot of opportunity in the world um, in fixed income, so longer-dated bonds. But also, if you look around, there's plenty of markets that are offering decent valuations as well. So I think cash is sort of day and the sun is over and you should be looking elsewhere. But in terms of your other point around diversification, I would definitely agree because we don't know what's going to happen in terms of, let's say, our election and we don't know how the market's going to react. No, we simply don't. And uh, however, uh, on the opposite side of that coin, the valuations are compelling. The JSE in real terms has delivered absolutely nothing uh, for the last five years. Um, it's been, you know, sort of in a in a tightly wound range of between 70, briefly up to 80,000, but mostly between sort of 70 and 75,000 in the all share index with some sort of switching in and out of resources and in and out of financials and in and out of some industrials. Uh, it's been kind of a patchy and really morose place to be if you've only been invested on the JSC. And I hear what you say in terms of diversification, but is it time that some of that diversification should be coming into the JSC if you've had a lot of money, for example, that made you that 26% in the United States last year? So if we think about not knowing the future and we take the example of the South African elections, what is the big risk the big risk, risk is an outcome that you don't expect. Um, and that can be double-sided. So if you took the ANC as the middle and hypothetically, well, not hypothetically, you went EFF as the left, and that's bad for markets, and you went um, more rightist parties as good for markets, you've got the surprise is if we get a good result. Because actually... Most people have diversified out of South Africa and have got low exposure. What is certainly true is that the offshore fund managers are very underweight South Africa. So if we actually get good news, they're forced to buy. So the RAND strengthens, interest rates fall, the cost of capital drops, you have interest rate cuts, um, and you've got cheap valuations. Suddenly you can get some quite spiky moves. So the balance of risk is actually... In South Africa, is nobody expects good news. 
therefore good news is is what you need to guard against. So in terms of my thinking, I run a worldwide flexible fund where I have the ability to take a lot, all of the money offshore. My risk is that there's good news in South Africa and I don't participate in that. Because yeah. for a RAND-based investor, if the RAND appreciates by 10%, um, you, and you, all of your money's offshore, you've got minus 10. That's, that's yes. very hard for me to, to, to land for my customer. So how are you positioning then, Peter, briefly if you can? So, look, I think in that environment, I, I, we tend to prefer SA bonds in the short term. Um, there's less of a macroeconomic impact on the profits. You've got that very high rate of return embedded in there. And... If you hold that through, it's got a massive spread compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and in real terms, you've got a stunning real return. So I like that for sort of a banker in South Africa for the next year. In the very long run, I'm more cautious about it because it's uncertain as to where we go to on inflation. And I'd, pr- I'd prefer an inflation-linked bond as an example because it's protected. But I do think you need to hold some South African assets. So in that fund... I was speaking about, I hold um, 16, well, sorry, it's 18% in South African bonds to give me that exposure. Peter Brook, thank you. Peter Brook is a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Absa CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. We'll bring you bits and pieces of the Genius Podcast series, which we launched last year. One of the episodes featured the remarkable story of how Investec became one of the biggest wealth managers in the UK after buying first a banking license from Barclays and then growing through acquisitions, some good, some bad, some pretty awful in the city of London, and it became a major player. After the founders retired from the business, of course, Stephen Kossoff and Bernard Cantor, uh, the company was divided into two bits, two separate listings, the bank, Investec, led by Fani Titi, the other, the asset management business, rebranded as 91, under the uh, leadership of the founding chief executive, Hendrik Dutoy, still at the helm after three decades. And I asked him, what was the great secret of success? And it comes, it turns out, all down to recruitment. When you see an exceptional talent, you must make space in a business. You cannot wait for the times they move on. I'll never forget when Investec made that ill-advised acquisition of Fetcher. The strategy head of Fetcher was a guy called John Green. I went to have a conversation along with the Investec team and I saw there was one guy in Fetcher who knew what he was doing. Kim McFarlane and I, or very shortly afterwards, invited John to come present the business to us and literally on the spot started trying to recruit him long before the deal was over. And Don today is our chief commercial officer, played a major role in our success, and so many other people. Whether it's out of university, I think it's Masa Yoshi's son from SoftBank. As I said to him, why did you invest in Alibaba? He said, I wanted to invest in China, and I found a guy with bright eyes. That's Jack Ma. If you see the bright eyes, if you see the, the different attitude, make space, Ordinary recruiting can never have that same impact, and often not on the first round. You get to know them, you see them in the industry, and at some point, the moment is right, and you're open. But recruitment is a constant job, and that's where most businesses 
fail is they're not engaging with a talent that can make the real difference. That takes a lot of courage though, doesn't it? I mean, because you're bringing in people who often are not linear careerists. They are often very different. They wouldn't fit in any normal corporate box. And as a business grows, it becomes more and more difficult to do that because the business becomes more organized. And if I look at our success stories, very few of them. Can you put Gail Daniel in a box? You didn't Can want you to. Put, you, you no, didn't, I didn't want to hire Gail because yeah. I thought she was, you know, in the interview, she and I still have an argument. I thought she wasn't dressed formally and she was a student just out of wits playing competitive tennis. Kieran Whelan overruled me. Kieran was working running the administration for us at that stage. And in typical Investec and also 91 culture, I said I don't want to hire. And Kieran just went off and uh, gave her another job. And two, three weeks later came to me and said she should be working as an analyst for you. And uh, you know what? That's how we work. But isn't, isn't that really important to have a culture that enables that sort of activity where in many places, Kieran William would have been admonished or disciplined. Right. He saw something that you didn't see at that point and said, he'll come around. I mean, that's, that's, that's a very key part of our culture. I believe in strong leadership from the top as well. But you've got to be open and two-way communication. I mean, there is Nazmira walking past Nazmira Mula, one of our most successful and most relevant investment capabilities today is our Africa infrastructure credit impact investing capability. She wanted to bring that into our business. Entire senior management said no probably three or four times to her. She kept coming and said, this is something we're going to need. And eventually we took it to now, you know, a decade later. It's really helpful. My colleagues... They have strong opinions, they take responsibility. We ask for forgiveness, not permission in this firm. There are only a few hard strategic parameters that you don't cross and people know what they are. For example, ethics is not negotiable. But in between, business is a consistent negotiation. And if you understand that, you can really optimize and grow. And I think most dynamic businesses are a function of collective creativity as opposed to individual creativity because that borders onto top-down directionalism and even the military although it's a top-down organization most armies have a doctrine that the person close to the action is entitled to overrule an order if he sees the situation on the ground differently and i think that's really key stephen kossif i remember him once saying to me that it's okay to make mistakes. And I said, but Vestic is a brutal place. It's a tough place. It's a demanding place. I said, yeah, no, just don't make the same mistake twice. And as long as you made the mistake with the best intentions for the business, that's okay. Learn from it and move on. Yeah, exactly. I will tell the story of Coca-Cola, the guy who was responsible for the biggest marketing disaster in Coke, was promoted to being CEO. You know, remember New Coke? Yes, changed the risk. But the guy was gutsy enough to cry. And uh, he was the son of a Cuban refugee. He had guts and eventually got it done. And I think in our business, the same thing. You get encouraged to go out to try. We are risk takers. We take risk on behalf of clients. If we become administrators, then we should earn passive fees. How do you train people who are untrainable? How do you not train the chutzpah out of them? You can train people to accept an ecosystem or the way it works. You can't change the person. So you've got to have enough with chutzpah. You've got to have enough with detail, diligent approach to life, and you have to balance. So the answer is in balance, but you can develop people, but you can't change them.
people also need to make a choice about the jobs they want to do. So one of the things that really helpful at 91 over time, we've been able to clarify our proposition to people who join us. And therefore, they could reject it. So sometimes when I see senior people at the end of a long interview process, I don't assess them. I ask them to assess us. And if I see there's a disconnect, I say, it's fantastic. You could be a friend of ours outside, but actually, you know what? It's not going to work here and allow them to say the same to us. So we measure people on only two axes. Results, which if you're in investment management, you can't escape it. Investment results are there. The lawyer doesn't get measured the way a fund manager gets measured or the creative person. And the other one is relationships. You don't get fired here for results unless you repeat bad results or you break the rules of the process you agreed to play by. But for relationships, if you can't get along with your colleagues, you can't get along with the stakeholders outside, and you disappoint them through bad behaviour, then actually you won't last long. I was chatting to Sir Bradley Freed, the former governor, the chairman of the board of the Bank of England, and he said Bernard Cantor and Stephen Kosev were unconsultable. The culture of Investec and then Investec Asset Management, now 91, stems from that ability to be very different and very entrepreneurial and sometimes a little bit wild. There was massive resistance. We don't look at others. We develop the business and that's a deep belief. We develop it. We do it our way. If you through first principles think what you do and you're instead of copying someone else, you truly believe it. Had we listened at that stage to Bradley's speech, which was all about return on equity and about not becoming too capital heavy, I think Investor could have been an even more valuable base. And it's a well-deserved knighthood, by the way, because Bradley served this community. He was on the FCA's board or predecessor, the FSA, after a successful career in the city. Um, And, of course, the McKinsey career. So, you know, we're very proud. And as as a South African Cape Town boy, we used to go and have Latin quizzes and the Westerford guys were all yeah. very clever. And, and he and John McNabb were at the same time in, in Westerford. So, you know, guys from South Africa can do things. It's so good to see. I mean, he then said he spotted you back then and said, you know, this guy's got talent, this guy's got skill. He described you. He didn't use the term rock star, but he said that you are a leading CEO in the city of London, which is a nice accolade from somebody who has risen through the top. He came in the same way as you were hired. Um, Stephen Kosev approached him to run Investec out of the United yeah. States. He heard he was going to join an American bank. He said, nah, don't do that. Come over here. Uh, no, and, and, and again, that was a, another Bernard and Stephen hire that was taking a slightly different angle to it. And I think businesses need character. So what we're saying is we're a team business. I mean, particularly investment management is a team sport. It's not an individual sport because you want to create sustainable investment returns over time, which means the team does evolve and does change. You've got to populate the team with game changers and people who can score when necessary and who can win. When you started out, you looked at the pool of potential money to invest in South Africa and went, that's nice, it's never going to be enough. You globalized really early in the process. It was a deliberate strategy. Yes, yes. And, and it was a deliberate strategy from a kind of people we hired. We said, we want to do something unique. And what I'm really proud of today is we're still the only business from a developing country, investment management, that has largely organically evolved. Now, we are not at the top of the Premier League. There are much bigger and, and older businesses ahead of us. If you come to London, 
you ask them five names or maybe ten names, ours will be known. And the next step is to try and do the same thing in the United States. That was the exciting path we set ourselves. And it wasn't chasing money. It wasn't a comfortable life. It was about learning and enjoying to participate in a fascinating industry. We are paid to think about the world, look at the world, and ultimately invest capital in such a way that our clients are better off. That is actually a fantastic, fantastic mission. That is Hendrik Dutoy, Chief Executive of 91, formerly known as Investec Asset Management. And the recruitment of Hendrik Dutoy in itself is a story that goes down in legend. You can find out the story of Hendrik's own recruitment on the Genius Podcast Series, Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast Series. It's available on your favorite podcast app, along with all of the other episodes of the Genius Series. That's just a taste. Tell me you're a nerd without saying, I'm a nerd. We used to do Latin quizzes. Oh, my goodness me, the 80s. The 80s must have been tough. Was it the late 70s? Anyway, Latin quizzes. Who would have thought? Toby Shapshak standing by. Back with him in a moment. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Chief at Stuff Studios, Toby Shapshak is with us this evening. And more and more people are putting themselves in the public domain. More and more people putting themselves into the space of YouTube. Everybody wants to be a content creator nowadays. And yes, you can do it on your smartphone, Toby. You can plug in a microphone. You can find a mic stand somewhere or lean your phone against a bookshelf and do it. Or you can do it with the Canon PowerShot V10. Oh, my goodness me. It sounds like, uh, I don't know. A car that uh, Jeremy Clarkson would have uh, would have would have reviewed, but this is a camera and not an outrageously priced camera with huge, huge flexibility and usability. That's a that's a really great summary, Bruce, and, and thank you for doing my job for me. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and thanks and goodbye. Um, <laughs> uh, firstly, happy New Year. Yes, it's an interesting. It's a really interesting product. And I, and I like Canon because they're looking at different ways to do what we've traditionally done with traditional technology. And this is not the first clever ex- extension of their, of their brand. They've done PowerShot is their, is their consumer facing sub brand, as it were. They've, you know, they've made a very clever lens. I forget its number, name and number. They have these complicated things, which is, which is a long lens aimed at birders. You know, birders are, who knew? Everybody loves birding. Uh, my late father was obsessed with it. My mother still is. Hi, Ma. Um, but here we go. They are now looking at not birders, but vloggers. And this is a clever solution. I, I, I carefully use the word, but, um, it uses it uses a different form factor, and I and I I'm going to show my age, Bruce, or, or you know show where we've come from by saying it's about the size of a pack of cigarettes, which is how everybody used to describe the original iPods when they came out. But that's the kind of size of it. It's relatively lightweight. It's very compact. Uh, it has it looks like a camera. If you remember the original flip cameras of of many many moons ago, uh, it looks very similar to that. It's got a little touchscreen at the back. It's about three or four inches. 
three inches maybe across the back. But what you can do is you can flip it up so that you can look at it from the front. It's got a very wide 6.6 mil lens, 5.8 exposure. So it's, it's very, it's very good. It's kind of unflattering if you use the little kickstand that comes with it. So it's got a clever little kickstand so you can position it on a desk and look down at it. Um, you know, even if you don't have a double chin being formed from under, from, from a low angle will give you a, uh, will give you a, um, a double chin whether you like it or not. But what's clever about it is that it, it does a clever, stop using the word clever, shall we? It does a good job of shooting video if you're the kind of person who shoots video of yourself and that's what vloggers are or you know so-called influencers or so-called creator creators um it's got a it's got the standard uh, jack at the bottom so you can screw it into a tripod if you want to put it on a tripod um and you it has two built-in microphones which are always good for noise cancelling and other things it's got a single button in front which you can use to record and not record and then all the other features are on the back so when you want to look at what you've shot or how you've done it or what you do you turn the camera back uh it has one thing that i'm amazed most uh, smartphone manufacturers don't include um they were always there in the ye old nokias which is a, a, a place to hang a lanyard so you can hang it around your neck your wrist uh that you wouldn't drop it it uses type c charging and of course the most important thing is it shoots 4k video it's known as uhd ultra high definition and you can get 25 or 30 frames per second if you want to shoot it at, at 1080p which is full hd to use the acronym uh, you can get 50 to 60 frames so depending on the high the, the resolution of what you want to shoot um you can get you know you can get a pretty good user experience of of using this little device and shooting very good footage as long as you don't um hold it down too much and let it give you a double chin as it's busy giving me at the moment um okay Got you on that particular front. Very briefly then, if you can't use the built-in, and it always irritates me that things have got built-in sort of features that are unusable, um, there is a telepod and is what is that? Is that like a tripod? Oh, so now this is, no, no, this, this is, this, this is, this, I mean, carry. it's a funny name. Yes, no, no, no. So it's, this is another thing. And in fact, I bought a whole bunch of these for, for my scroller Africa. Uh, reporters, which is, it's, it's made by a brand called Joby. Its name is weird. Tight Grip Pro Telepod. Um, but what it is, is, is a clever little tripod with three legs, but you can extend it from, you know, 34 centimeters to 79 centimeters. It's tall enough to put on a desk and you can sit there and you can shoot video of yourself. It's got a clever little, uh, a clamp at the top, a grip that can hold the phone either vertically or horizontally. It's got a cold shoe, so you can put in a light or you can put in a, a microphone. It only weighs 400 grams. So I've given it to my reporters and it, it has a Bluetooth remote, of course, as well. So you can, you can shoot your own little videos or little things to TikTok or, or Instagram if you want to do it vertically. If you're shooting for TV or that kind of thing, you can do it horizontally. And, and what's great about this, Bruce, is that it turns you know, for, for not particularly much. I mean, it's 2000 Rand at the moment and take a lot, but last year I saw them on sale for about a thousand or just over a thousand, 1100, just under a thousand off sometimes. And I bought a couple of those and it turns. Okay. 
anyone's smartphone because you know frankly an eight megapixel selfie camera which is at least the basic on on you know most mid-range to up upper mark upper model uh top end smartphones is more than enough for shooting footage and it performs yeah. very much the the same function so there you go if you want to see yourself on video there are two good options canon's powershot v10 costs about 10 grand but it shoots 4k or joby's grip tight pro telepod which is a kind of half a tripod. It's not a full tripod, but it's it's very clever. It's very simple. It's lightweight, and uh, and it can turn anybody into a vlogger. There we will leave it. Thank you very much, Toby Shapshak. He's the chief at Stuff Studios, bringing us to Eyewitness News now at seven o'clock. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on seven o two. Let's walk the talk on ninety two point seven and one o six FM. Now, that is an interesting turn up for the books, isn't it? Because we've had two international banks uh, basically pay uh, fines in order to no longer face any sort of investigation or prosecution in relation to that more than decades old currency manipulation story. The competition uh, tribunal, therefore, has investigated and says, Standard Bank, you're off the hook. Another 26 banks to go or thereabouts, but it certainly is an interesting breakthrough and uh, positive on the front of Standard Bank as one of the domestic banks accused as part of a bundle of those who are alleged to have been involved in currency manipulation. And again, if you live in social media world in the la-la land that that constructs, um, you are led to believe that banks deliberately devalued the currency. Um, and then the politicians get involved and they don't begin to understand the very first aspects of the story, never mind the implications of the story, and it gets blown out of proportion completely. So anyway, good news on that particular front. ABSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSC Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. ABSA is a registered FSP. In this hour, Professor Raymond Parsons is standing by for us. Professor Raymond Parsons, of course, is at the University of North Northwest. He is an economist. He is a, a long-respected commentator on the South African economy, but he's got a global view as well. And we're going to get a view from him as to what 2024 might hold. Ian Mann, our regular business book reviewer, reviewing a book with the most compelling title I've seen so far this year. It's the first title, but still a compelling title, Smart Brevity. And I'll tell you why in particular I'm interested in this. It comes after a remark from a chief executive when I asked him whether he read business books. And he said no. And he told me why. And I think the Smart Brevity book goes to answer part of that question. And then Lyndon Burns, um, who is our guest on How I Make Money this evening, on how you take a journalism degree and make money out of it. I'm going to be paying close attention. That is what is coming up on The Money Show for the rest of the program this evening. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Well, the world are washed with about what 2424 holds. And one thing is certain, all of those predictions will be wrong. Uh, so rather than make a prediction, this is going to be an outlook. Uh, we've got wars in Europe and the Middle East. We've got a property crisis in China. We've got remaining inflation high and in some places coming down, but recently bumping up again. And uncertainty around interest rate cuts. Uh, we've got a huge number of general elections coming up this year, something like 50 
around the world and significant economies, including our own. Uh, the IMF is forecasting global growth of 2.9%, which is a little bit softer than last year. But we've got all kinds of uncertainties brewing everywhere. And I, I, you know, when people say, oh, the future is so uncertain, well, it is as uncertain this year as it was last year, as it was the year before, and every year before that. We just choose to put different emphasis on the risks in different years. Professor Raymond Parsons is an economist at the University of Northwest. Do we start to shake off some of the effects of long COVID, Raymond, in terms of the the big hangover that the world seems to still be struggling under? Are we beginning to shrug that off now? Yes, good evening to you. And may I wish you a happy new year, everything the best for the 12 months that lie ahead. <clears throat> but coming more specifically to your question, look, I think we've, we're already out of the post-COVID period now. We've got other challenges which are not linked to what happened when we went through that awful period with, with the pandemic. I think what we need to ask ourselves now is what are the uncertainties that we are facing this year? And importantly, you've also mentioned some of the global factors. What's important here is not to get stressed about the factors over which you have no control, but to focus on the factors domestically over which you do have control, which can help to build your your own resilience and, above all, do nothing domestically to enhance uncertainty. That is now the important challenge, and we will have seen from our index, as you know, which has been published for the past six or seven years every quarter, we calibrate the level of, of policy uncertainty, what are the positive and the negative factors, Yes, there were some positive factors in the last quarter of, of, of last year, but we're still in negative territory and we need to unpack the factors over which we do have control this year and which can make a difference to our economic performance. Okay, so, well, I mean, in terms of the big factors, what do you see them as being? The important point is on the positive side. If you say immediately that we know that that inflation is now starting to unwind. It's coming down. Food inflation is also down. Um, and that means that you can then start to look forward to interest rates coming down, that they will begin to come down this year. I emphasize the word begin to come down. That also load shedding, if the promises are kept, there will still be load shedding, but hopefully it will be at much lower levels than we've experienced in the past year. And then finally, there is some tentative evidence that the business cycle will turn during the year that maybe we might grow at 1%. Let me say immediately, that's not good enough, but it's positive compared to last year. And so the important point now is, what will the politics do this year to overshadow some of, the, some of, some of those positive aspects that we would like to see uh, in terms of investment and growth and employment and so forth. Yeah, all of those issues, and I, I, I saw some commentary from a I'm going to, Raymond Parsons. We're going to try and get you on a better quality phone line, um, simply because the deteriorating quality of telecommunications is something with which we need to cope. But uh, so I was sort of subjected to a barrage of not criticism, it was, it was sort of insight from a professor at Wits University, a professor of politics whose name I now forget, but just saying, oh, listening to people on the money show, oh, the capitalists. 
sector is terrified of democracy. That's not a fear of democracy. Democracy is a good and powerful and wonderful thing. But democracy can lead to negative uh, commercial outcomes. It can lead to negative business outcomes if the people who are elected are going to make duff decisions for the future. It's not rocket science. I mean, we've seen countries that were prosperous and countries that have all of the potential in the world go into severe decline as a result of often the abuses of democracy. I mean, Venezuela is one of them. Uh, Zimbabwe is another. The abuses by ZANU-PF of the electoral process in Zimbabwe make terrible bedfellows. And so this isn't a fear of democracy. This is a fear of negative commercial outcomes. And in any economy, it is going to be the poor who suffer the most when things go awry. And things will go awry if poor policy decisions are made. So it is a policy question, isn't it, Professor Raymond Parsons, as to whatever, whoever is in government next, whether it be the incumbents, whether it be um, a more left-leaning ideology or a more right-leaning ideology. It comes down to sensible choices for the long term. I think the first round is, of course, that you have an electoral process which is democratic, which is preceded by a, a robust debate about the options which are offered by the various political parties. I would sum it up by saying, in fact, uh, whatever the uncertainties such as the ANC dropping below 50% or that, that individuals can now take part in, in the election without being part of a political party uh, and that you've got new political formations and that you may have a coalition outcome. The outcome eventually is what would be good for our economy, because I would like to leave the thought with you that on the ballot paper is not just the names of political parties and of individuals. The economy is on the ballot paper, and therefore we need to exercise our choices in such a way that after the election we can move towards a bigger, stronger, and better economy. So those are the choices that our voters have to make, and they must participate in order to make those choices. Unfortunately, our politicians don't campaign on the economy. They don't put forward very strongly, not in the public domain, it may be hidden away in policy documents that nobody else other than a handful of people ever read, but their, their policy positions, and then even when they do have policy positions, few will ever deliver on those policy positions because often they're fanciful. Uh, but I would like to see political parties this year actually campaign on the economy. Tell us how you're going to get back to growth of 5% and let us hold you to it, for example. Absolutely. I mean, that's the point I'm making. The economy is metaphorically on the ballot paper, whether you like it or not. And if the voters are complaining that their standard of living is deteriorated, that there's unemployment, there isn't job-rich growth. Why are we only growing at 1% when we know this country can grow at 3 4 and 5%, as you've indicated? They have then got to convey that message to the political leadership. That is what democracy, with all its flaws, is all about. That at the end of the day, you get the government and the policies you deserve, is, is the saying. And I think it's up to the South African electorate in this watershed election to send a message to whoever party they prefer to say, this is what we want from you. And this is what we need in order to unlock this country's potential. We cannot be satisfied with a 1% growth rate. I mean, it's just, 
It's, it's way below our population growth. It means the country is being steadily impoverished. And that is the big overarching challenge that now faces all the political parties, is to come to the party and say, we can make a difference, vote for us, whatever it may be. And the electorate has got to make a choice. Electorate has got to make a choice of which party or combination of parties will now deliver on the economy so that you can satisfy the aspirations, not of you and me, but of the many people out there who are impoverished, unemployed, and who feel they have not achieved what they should have achieved. Thank you to Professor Raymond Parsons at the University of Northwest this evening. As always, incisive and insightful perspective, Professor Raymond Parsons. Coming up in a moment, Ian Mann, who's always on the button in terms of the delivering to us the reviews of the books that he consumes. He's read hundreds of business books over the years. He's a regular book reviewer on The Money Show, the managing director at Gateway's Business Consultants, Ian Mann, coming up next. The Money Show. Business books. Ian Mann, book this evening, Smart Brevity. And I remember asking the Sunlam Chief Executive, Paul Hanratty, whether or not he reads business books. And he said, no. And I was quite taken aback. And he said, well... Most of these books are based on a single idea. Sometimes it's a useful idea. Mostly it's not really. And then you've got the person who had the smart idea having to justify it with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages in a book which are all superfluous and what could have been a one-page document saying, here's my big idea, this is how to use it. Today's authors, I think, would probably agree their book is Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less. How long is this book? Yes. Well, that's it. The book has got 27,291 words, and it will take you 104 minutes to read. It's that quick. The, the, uh, okay, the, the good. The beauty is that the people, the, the beauty is that the people who wrote this book, um, Van der Hey, Allen, and Schwartz, all come from a, from a, a, a magazine or writing background. Um, Van der Hey was writing for Time. Allen was writing for Washington Post. Sports writing for Politico, and they all—they all in each one of those papers. This brevity is an, is not should become an obsession, and I, it has to be. That has to become an obsession now. Because never in human history have people been been able to spew out more words through more media with more velocity. That's the world in which we live. So that's why so much of our inboxes are filled with unnecessary stuff, and all it does is it clogs our mind with information or ideas that we that we don't need to know. But people keep write, writing them. Apparently, people read them or listen to them. But the volume is, is so huge. Now, the result of all of this is very simple. The, the result of all of this... Uh, the revolt... How would you like to do it? You're on the phone. Um, yeah, Ian, sorry, again, the signal. I don't know what's going on with our signals this evening. Usually, we get a perfectly crystal clear signal on these digital platforms, but tonight it is not collaborating one little bit. So, dear producers, let's try and get Mr. Mann uh, onto a telephone because he's got such valuable insights and wisdom. And I think the amount of time we wasted this evening. Uh, on filling space and trying to get uh, in, get hold of our guests tonight 
has meant that we are not living up to the title of the book, Smart Brevity, because we keep having to make excuses. Um, yeah, so it's this idea, Ian Man, of you know, they, they practice what they preach. I'm a big believer in be good, be brief, be gone, as are they. What sort of guidance do they give in terms of communicating more effectively using fewer words? The, the, the reality is that we have to, because here's, here's what the problem is. It's not that, that it's, we got a lot of information, and the problem with information is that quite simply, we don't get through all of it. Most things are not read. Most things are most important communications in business are, not, are, 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 are glossed over. And, and, and the fact is that nobody's ever taught you how to do this. You know, I must tell you, Mark Twain wrote to a friend in 1891. And the letter, <laughs> in his letter, he apologized to his friend. He said, I'm sorry I didn't have a chance. I was so busy, I couldn't write you a short letter, so I've written you a long one. And what we've got to do is that we have to be sure that, that we actually get through to people. I think that the most important thing is to notice that whether it doesn't matter what you do, about 50 or 60% of the average employee's time is spent on communication of some sort. And if you haven't had training in this, you probably will not do well. And I think this book is a, is a nice, short, brief form of training. The key is this. If you, if, you had to, if you had to try and get things as sharp as you can, you probably could do that by following very, very few key rules. And the key rules are smart brevity. For example, you could say you can do a lot more with less. That, by the way, is eight words. Or you could simply say do more with less, which is four words. When, we, when people, are, people can't get exactly what you want really crisply, really quickly, you might as well not say much because they're not hearing it. They give some nice uh, advice as to how to do this in the book, and I think that that's what makes the book so useful. I think we can start I, with... I looked at I looked at some of the lessons here, man, and some of the lessons date from my, my, from my Journalism One course many years ago. I mean, the bottom line is we see so much text and people send long emails, people send long communiques. The reality is that no one is going to read most of what you write. If you can't make a point quickly, succinctly, and with clarity, then you are not going to land your message at all. So it is at in all. your own best interest to communicate with clarity and brevity. Uh, exactly. And I think that the, when we talk about doing it short, short, if short is shallow, then it's just bad communication. It's got to be short and clear. And I think that the first thing we need to understand is that if there's any basic lessons we can learn, the golden rule is that you've got to, you've got to write for your audience. Now, if you think that the people you're writing for are going to read uh, a page of text to get what you're talking about, forget about it. I think that those days are long gone, certainly in business and in, 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 in quick communications like emails or, 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 or WhatsApp. So there are essentially four, five rules that they would, they would promote. Rule number one is start off with what they call, I like, I like the word, a muscular tease. It must be a headline that, that, and which explains the subject. It should contain no more than six words, but it has to grab your attention. Because if it doesn't grab your attention, you're not going to go through the paragraph and see if there's anything interesting there. Once you've got your muscular teeth, come up with one strong first sentence. And that strong first sentence should tell you something I don't know, which is fine, that I would want to know, and that I, that I should know. And once, that, once I get that point, that within, in a short, direct sentence, as sharply as possible, 
are very likely to go on. Once I'm going on, you need to, next step, or the third step is explain why the context matters. You need to know why your new facts or idea is important and relevant. If what you're telling me is not important and not relevant, I'm not going to go to the last stage, which is to make the choice to go deep into what you're talking about. And the, the whole, whole issue here is we've got to worry about what is the clearest, most efficient way of talking to absolutely anyone. If you have a singer who sings absolutely beautifully, but nobody's listening to their songs, which is what's happening to most of us, it's not. It's not very. It's hardly smart. I think that smart. The, the two most important words in the smart brevity technique is audience first. Who am I talking to? How much time will they spend with us? What will catch their attention? Why this is terribly important. It, it, it really, really is worthwhile repeating. Though everybody probably knows this. When we write, we very often write for our ego, and we we tend to think about what we want to say rather than what the other people need or want to hear. Because yeah. we are so concerned with that, we tend not to get through to people. We forget, I think, yet, man, just how much competition there is for our audience's attention. Um, and those who land their messages best with absolute clarity and brevity are more likely to be taken seriously than somebody who makes the audience work. If you make an audience work, the audience is less likely to engage, and if they're not engaged, they're disengaged. If they're disengaged, you're wasting your time. Pope Francis told the Catholic priest in Slovakia, he he, he instructed them to cut their sermons down from 40 minutes to 10 minutes. He said, well, people will lose interest. And he he jokes, he says, it was the nuns who approved of that most because they wanted to listen to his sermons. But the, the, I think that we, if, we can't get, if we can't get an important message, a message across smartly and briefly, we don't have any chance anymore of getting anything across. I, I think that I, I love poetry and I love good literature. But the fact is that that is a very specific form of communication and shouldn't, be, shouldn't come anywhere near your, your, your constant, your day-to-day communications with people. There was a time, if you, if you remember how your grandfather would have written, it was very important that you look terribly erudite in your, in your construction of your sentences and, and that, that be mellifluous. Um, that's long gone. People say, get to the point, get to it quickly and make it absolutely clear and easy for me to understand what you're saying. I would urge everybody to have a look at this book. It's only going to take you 104 minutes to do and that's read quite slowly and very, very few books. Um, I think it would be really nice if authors of books said to you, look, most important parts of this book can be read in 62 minutes, whatever it is. I think they get a whole lot more people reading them and not just skipping over chapters which might be the most relevant ones. I mean, you're old enough, Ian, and I'm not pointing fingers or anything here, but you're old enough to remember Reader's Digest and the condensed books. I mean, they took <laughs> yeah, yeah, boring long books like Treasure Island and told you all the gory bits that you really wanted to hear. And it's that yeah. sense of just take out the nonsense and give people what they need or what they want, and it's possible to do on any piece of writing. It's, it's a winning formula. And, and, and I think people can't... It's, it's a good message to start the year with. Nobody can follow your instructions at work if they don't understand them. So they have to be smart. And they're not going to listen for a long time to try and work out what you're trying to get them to do. They're just going to nod off and nod. 
Ian Mann, thank you very much indeed. Ian Mann is the Managing Director at Gateway's Business Consultants. He regularly reviews books for us and does it with with aplomb. Thank you, Ian Mann, very, very much indeed. Yeah, so Smart Brevity is the title of the book, um, and it's a case of understanding that nobody is going to read most of what you write. Write like a human. Write like you speak. Rule number one. Oh, it's one of the most complex things to teach people. You do not need to be verbose. You do not need to be complicated. Say it as you write it as you speak it. Work for the audience. Do the work for the audience. Don't make the audience have to go, what what does he mean? What does she mean? What do they mean? The other one is, Spell out your takeaways. And you can go a little bit too American on this and they treat your audience like they're idiots. So that's a bit careful. And then know when to stop, which is what I'm doing for Eyewitness News now at half past seven. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. So our whole I Make Money feature is designed to help you think about your career choices. It's designed to help you help those who you worry about, and we all have people we worry about, make better career choices. And it's based on the principle that just because you studied accounting or law or IT or engineering or whatever it is, it doesn't necessarily condemn you to following that particular passion. Not that there's anything wrong with those passions, of course. Uh, One of my favorite entrepreneurs, Aisha Pandor, um, studied human genetics. And I don't think she's looked through a microscope since the day she got a degree because she went off and started a business. Absa CIB, winner of the Best Research House in the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. Absa is a registered FSP. I know Lyndon Burns, and you know Lyndon Burns, is the guy who is the go-to on anything to do with aviation. He's plugged into the sector. He understands it intimately, but there's so much more to him than just that. He's the managing director and the partner at Plain Talking. Plain as in P-L-A-N-E, but because he studied journalism, it's a double entendre. It's a play on words because he's witty like that. He's a partner at BHK Crisis Communications, a senior associate at Go Crisis. He loves it when things go wrong because that's when he's called in with sirens blaring to help people who've got themselves into trouble. Sometimes through their own stupid fault, but sometimes because things have just gone wrong. Lyndon Burns studied journalism at Rhodes University and something I didn't know until today, a little bit of speech and drama on the side. He was lazy in those days because at Rhodes University, the journalism department and the drama department were in the same building, so he didn't have to walk very far. Was that why you made those choices, Lyndon? Hello. (laughs) Hi, Bruce. Hi, everyone. Uh, Actually, the reason I chose drama, because I was going to do journalism, uh, much to my father's dismay, he wanted me to do accounting, and I'm a useless So I didn't tell him I was enrolling at Rhodes until I sent him the bill. Um, And so your journalism, I was going to do English. And then somebody said to me, oh, you should check out drama because if you do uh, drama, you get double time in the studio, in the TV and the radio studio. And I really wanted to build a career in broadcast. Um, So that was where I was heading, you know, so... Yeah, signed up to be a DJ on Rhodes Music Radio, ended up tutoring radio journalism and production and then television and film animation. So 
Yeah, nothing at all to do with aeroplanes. Plenty to do with came later, but. Your, your Rhodes University career sounds remarkably similar to mine and many others, people that yeah. we know and have in common, although you were there a little while before I was. I mean, your first job then, I mean, you leave Rhodes University, you leave with a great degree, um, and you go to Radio Southwest Africa. And there you are mentored by a guy that very few people listening to us this evening will remember. I remember him when I was tiny hosting a show called Biltong on Pot Roast in the early days of television. His name was Clark McKay. He was a, a funny guy in those days. I'm sure he was a great a great mentor. Blackie was legendary. I mean, he was a real radio veteran. Uh, he'd come, I think, you know, LM Radio and then Springbok. And then he was one of the very first DJs on 702 when the station started back in whenever it was, 1980 or something. Um, it was a music station. And yes, he, yeah. It was a music station then. And and Radio Southwest Africa, the then SWA BC, um, was staffed with a lot of these sort of veterans from Springbok Radio and five and, and what was then Radio 5 and, and things like that. We had, uh, and Clacky was by far, you know, uh, um, He's the guy I remember most who taught me everything I remember about radio and, and that I know today and that I I put to practice in my media training. I put it into practice when I'm doing interviews. Uh, learned so much from the man. Uh, you know, what a great guy and uh, very, very humble. Um, yeah, but terrific behind the mic. I mean, that guy came to life behind a microphone. It was just astonishing to see. So, yeah, I was there um, in the mid-'80s. Uh, and then moved across to television. Uh, but it was a really, you know, um, it was good teething stuff. Uh, I, I was nominally the sports reporter, but, you know, I was born in Manchester, grew up in Johannesburg, uh, came to South Africa when I was a child. I was seven years old. Nobody in my Mancunian family ever spoke a word of Afrikaans. And I land in Vintuk and I'm told I've got to go out and do commentary <laughs> on Yuxke in Afrikaans. <laughs> Hey, look, it prepares you for <laughs> for a different uh, for a, for a different world. But you and Johnny Clegg, um, there's some similarities there as well. Of course, um, you had a horrible incident in Katlahong as a news reporter, and yeah. you then decided this is sort of hard news reporting. I think is for the birds, and that's when you started covering aviation for I think Business Day yeah. in those days, and started developing a passion. And for for many people, once they sort of discover aviation, it becomes something of an obsession, which I suspect it did with you. It, it did. It was quite weird, you know. So so really what happened in a nutshell is I trashed a, a, a car that was on loan to, to the newspaper for the day. It was a demo model Fiat Uno. And I'd taken it into Catlahong um, and ended up getting ambushed and the car got completely trashed and I drove it back on three wheels to Diagonal Street where the carpool was and Jim Jones was the editor of the paper and he was waiting <laughs> at the lift at the entrance to the newsroom, tore a strip off me uh, and, and you know, was demolished to know how I managed to trash a car and I said to him, well, if that's your attitude, I'm out of here. And then he calmed down <laughs> and he said, well, do you want to write about something else? I don't want to lose you. I said, well... We're supposed to be covering, you know, all sorts of industries and activities. You've got nobody covering defense, security, and nobody covering aviation and air transport and, and the aerospace industry. And he said, well, what do you know about that? I said, oh, I know the front end from the back end of an airplane. When I was a kid, I was fascinated with airplanes, but that's it. But I said to him, look, you know, okay, here's the deal. Give me a couple of months 
if you're not happy with my productivity and the sort of stories I break, we call it quits and and uh, we go our separate ways. What I didn't tell him was that Chris Gibbons and Mike Wills had actually been trying to lure me to join 702 at the time and had made me an offer, yeah. but I kept that one in my pocket. <laughs> so, yeah, that- took up. Uh, the couples went in to, to, to investigate this industry and just found it absolutely fascinating, thrilling. Um, I, I had some memorable experiences I had when I was still uh, with Business Day and then later when I would um, uh, started writing and producing books with the late uh, great Herman Pockheater, who was my, my partner in crime and by far the best photographer we ever had in this country covering aviation and and and, and yes and he was brilliant like he published lots of books and, yeah um, it was and, and i did you know stuff like you know flying on concord twice to new york um as a journalist a uh, brilliant trip um you know I, I was in the cockpit for the approach the descent and the approach and landing at jfk coming in from sixty thousand feet at mach 2.5 you know coming off the cruise um and then a year later going on an old dc4 um, 1945 <laughs> top liner from Joburg with John Travolta all the way to Oshkosh in Wisconsin, uh, an 11 day trip. So it's a colourful career, but as, as you figured yeah. out that sort of traditional journalism doesn't pay and you needed to diversify, right. so you started Plain Talking. Yes. Now, what, what, was, what was Plain Talking in its genesis? What was the idea, so, mid-1992, uh, when, you, when you start thinking about aviation and covering this industry differently from being the hack who has the good time and gets the freebies but doesn't yeah. get the paycheck? So... Like most good, solid journalists, was very, very weary of PRs uh, and PR flax. And I was on a press trip uh, to fetch the first Airbus A320 for South African Airways for Business Day, uh, covering it, and got back to South Africa. And a couple of weeks later, they got a phone call from um, a person who was running the press office in Toulouse at Airbus, and she said, you know, Hey, you know, we thought really hard about what you what you were saying to us at dinner a couple of weeks ago, and and we really could do with someone who understands media and is passionate about the industry. We could do with someone to represent us in in Southern Africa. I was like, what the hell did I say? I just remember drinking lots of red <laughs> wine. Um, anyway, and they pursued me for a few months, and I kept saying, well, look, you know, I'm I'm a journalist. I'm dedicated to the truth and all good things like that, and. Anyway, eventually they persuaded me to come over, come and have a look and have a chat. And they explained to me, or she explained to me, um, what this was all about and what PR is about. And it's not about lying or spinning or any of that stuff. And and, and actually, it's about helping media more than anything else. And, and um, the person at the time, her name was Barbara, is Barbara Kracht. She was employee number four at Airbus. Her father was one of the founding fathers and she ran the press office for nearly 40 years there. She was head of head of communications. And she's my partner in BHK. She's the K in the BHK ah, uh, okay. crisis comp. So we still work t- together today and we talk nearly every other day. Um, so I've been very fortunate to have a mentor like her, just as I was tacky on the broadcasting side. And, um, yeah, and then started plain talking, doing... PR essentially for Airbus, but then very quickly other clients in the aerospace field and in aviation followed. 
And I've been very careful not to spread myself too thin because really it's all been about quality um, and really getting immersed in the work that the client's doing. And I've, and I've ended up working on some phenomenal campaigns around, uh, around the world, not just here in South Africa, but in many, many places. And um, programs like the A380 Super Jumbo, I was involved on the comm side for that from the get-go and very involved in, uh, the, in making sure there was a proper robust crisis communications plan and strategy in place for when they took that aircraft on the first test flights. I, I remember taking David O'Sullivan with me to witness the maiden flight uh, in Toulouse. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, that's been my approach really is, you know, focus, really get to know the clients well, understand their business, really get immersed. Um, and, um, and that's really paid off. And, and those are the sort of relationships that I treasure. And I I know a lot of people say to you, you know, oh, if you want loyalty, get a dog. Um, frankly, I don't buy that. Uh, I mean, yes, I, I, I've been burned and had some, had some disappointing experiences, um, but most of them have been really good. And the people I've come to know have respected us for that. And um, I'm very fortunate. My youngest son has now joined me as a business partner and come into the same field. And and this is part of our culture. And I think this okay. is also part of the value that I've tried to instill um, in my sons uh, and and in their approach to business as well. Um, but it's an interesting. And I think it also comes from. It comes from something it's such like, an interesting change, on, though, isn't it? I mean, and, and in terms of going, you know, going from mainstream journalism, from sort of the political beat, mm. if you like, to the trans South African and transition beat, to having a really tough experience mm. and then going stuff this for a bag of sausages. I'm going to do something different, and then leveraging the experience that you gain um, as a reporter. See, your, your you know ignites a passion within you, and then. A, a yeah. relationship with the corporate as a, a contractor for that corporate for over 30 years, which I think is, you know, up yeah. there in terms of endurance on both sides. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And, you know, nothing lasts forever. And it was a phenomenal um, partnership, not just a relationship. And there are no bridges burned or anything like that. I'm not no longer on contract to Airbus, but I still retain all those relationships and, um, you know, good friendships as well. And, a lot that I've learned and um, and a lot of lessons that can be applied in, you know, with other clients and other areas of the industry. Uh, similarly, you know, I've, 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 um, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with, with Airlink um, and I've known Roger Foster and his team since they started the airline. In fact, I was one of only three journalists that covered the launch press conference at the Sunnyside Park Hotel in 1992 <laughs> when he... When he announced that he was going to buy this air, the, the remnants of an airline from the liquidator and started Airlink. Um, so, you know, we've walked a very long way um, and it's been a fascinating journey. Uh, and it's also an incredible company through highs and lows. You know, that, that's not been an easy ride for them either. Um, and I think that's part of it is to stand by your clients. Um, you know, this is something my grandpa taught me. My granddad went off, uh, you know, he, he, he was a son of an immigrant family. Um, he was sent to England from Poland in, as a six-year-old, sent on a ship 
ostensibly to America. The ship docked in Yorkshire. The captain said, everyone off. Welcome to America. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hulk. And he ended up working on markets to earn enough money to bring his brother over and then his sister and then the parents. And um, anyway, served in the war. The house got bombed in a blitz. And uh, my grandma and my mom and uncle got uh, moved into the countryside in Derbyshire. My grandpa came back after the war, started a hardware business, and he'd been working on tanks and trucks during the war and and built up this general dealership, basically, of, you know, a, a, a typical Smos, uh, you know, a general dealer store yeah. in a small town. But he always said, and the one thing that always impressed me when he was alive and I spoke to him, he always said, you know, get to know your customers, be loyal to them, they'll be loyal to you. You know, uh, people will, you know, if, if you're with them through thick and thin, um, it'll pay off the rewards. The other thing he told me, which I've never forgotten, and which always comes back to bite me, is always says, try never to be in debt. <laughs> and I know we want to talk <sighs> about money. <laughs> no, and it's, it's, it's real, the curse of, of sort of being descended from people who remember the Great Depression, isn't it? Don't ever do debt. Yeah. Don't ever do this. And those lessons as a yeah. kid uh, ring true and stick, uh, stick with us, don't they? They do. But then my mum was an entrepreneur. In South Africa, she started the first black hair products business. She had a lab assistant called Herman Mashabo who went on, decided <laughs> actually there's more money in, really? in retail products. She was doing professional products and she also had a training school. And, <laughs> and she always said, oh, if other people want to give you money to use, use their money. <laughs> and Herman took so, that yeah. seriously, I suppose, and, 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 and did okay out of Herman it. Did I mean, yeah, he's diversifying now, but yes. He did well. And, and Herman also ended up in for a while in, in the aerospace and aviation business. Um, in fact, I ran into him at the late, at Aerosid, at the late Dr. Paul Pothita's office a few years ago when he said, oh, I want to introduce you to our new uh, black, uh, broad-based black empowerment partner. Uh, and he's actually here in the boardroom at the moment. I walked in and it was Herman. He said, Lyndon, what are you doing here? <laughs> haven't seen you since 1981. <laughs> Amazing. That's lovely. So, yeah. How do you then get transition from uh, sort of, I don't want to say vanilla communications, but certainly into yeah. the world of crisis communications? Because in the world of communications, yeah. if you want adrenaline, if you want to feel like you are sort of doing off-piste skiing in an avalanche, I think crisis communications is about as close as it comes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is really sort of, you know, trying to suck on a fire hydrant. With, with the taps open. Um, I was always fascinated by disasters. My mum and dad were always dismayed. I'd spend hours in the, in the library, at Santon Library or wherever I'd go, you know, reading disaster books instead of reading, you know, fiction. Um, and working in aviation, it tends to be that if there's an accident, it tends to be pretty high profile uh gets a lot of media attention and a lot of people want a lot of answers and it in, involves lots of different people and different players different cultures nationalities uh, governments get interested um so it's a great way to kind of cut your teeth in crisis communications is working in in the airline industry or in the aerospace sector um i mean just to give you a quick example um there was an, an accident a few years ago involving uh, Mozambican airline 
uh, where the pilot decided to do, commit suicide and took the aircraft and all the passengers with him and crashed it into the Caprivi. And um, there was something, I think we had 16 different nationalities represented by just the passengers. So those are 16 different nationalities, cultures, languages, legal jurisdictions, not to mention all the different issues with faith and religion and practices around that and all the pressures that brought to bear. Uh, then there was also political rivalry that had to be navigated between Mozambique and Angola because the aircraft was on its way to Angola. But because it crashed in Namibia, Namibians were responsible for the investigation. The aircraft was built in Brazil, so they were involved. The engines were American, so they were involved, and, and, and. And it just became this fascinating cauldron. Uh, and and you're, you're trying to to help the people involved um, make sure that they are still capable of running their airline, that their business doesn't go out of business, that they are able to take care and demonstrate that they are being responsible towards their customers and the families of the victims um, and that they're doing all the right things um, and, and trying to stop them tripping over themselves or, 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 or you know, putting their feet in their mouth and doing daft things. Um, and it's, it's terribly sad as well because you're also dealing with a lot of it, it's Absolutely. highly emotionally charged and you're dealing with a lot of tragedy. Um, but it's also a very rewarding uh, um, line of work to be in as well. Um, and I guess, uh, I, you know, I've been fortunate. I, I guess I'm pretty good at it in, in some way because I keep getting asked to help. Um, you have a reputation and, for and it, being calm under fire, which I think in in most cases, because you're not intimately involved, it's, you know, you are the outsider, you're the consultant, you you come in from the outsider. It's often provided yeah. you know what you're doing and you know what you're talking about and you understand the industry to which you're advising. Sometimes a bit of sanity in the room, I think, is exactly what's required, particularly when all hell's breaking loose. And, and maybe that's yeah. where your exposure to journalism has been valuable. I think so. And I, I think, you know, it's also about just doing the basic common sense things that people want. Be a mensch, you know, be helpful. Um, you know, yes, you've got to, and, and that's about advising your clients to be helpful um, uh, and, and, and do the good things. And yes, it's a bit, I suppose, like a doctor or a lawyer, you, there is an element of detachment. But, you know, on, on all of the big deployments I've been on, um, in various parts of the world. We've always had mental health uh, specialists with us. We've always had debriefings every day. And before you end, uh, uh, you know, a, a deployment, you go for a full decompression. The hardest part of these things is coming home because you come home to your loved ones who don't have us any comprehension of what you've just been through. Um, and uh, that requires... A, a, a lot of effort on all sides, your, your family side, your own side. You don't want to be dumping everything on anyone either. Um, and again, you, you, you learn to find strength and outlets um, for your emotion. And for me, it's my music and, um, and, and doing things like that. And um, 
uh, and and yeah, I, I I think you know the, the crisis comms has always been about it's always been common sense. Don't make it over complicated. Um, yeah. You know, you do what you've got to do. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating insights, uh, Lyndon Burns. Thank you for sharing this evening. Lyndon Burns is a man of many hats, started out in journalism, but uh, branched out in the early 1990s into aviation, first as a reporter, then as a consultant to one of the biggest aviation businesses in the world. Today, a crisis communication specialist um, and somebody who has got a good reputation in that field. Lyndon Burns this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.